Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Honey Project. Today on the show, I'm joined by Not So Fast, who is simply put, an infectiously curious intellectual and a thoughtful giving member of the crypto community. He's also an advisor to Honey Miner, where we make software to make cryptocurrency mining easier and more profitable for everyone, beginners and professional mine operators alike. Enjoy the show. All right. Well, today it is my pleasure to be joined by Not So Fast, who has striven to set a good example for conduct in the wild west of the cryptocurrency space. He has become, despite his pseudonymity, widely known as a friendly, knowledgeable figure providing early, positive early experiences for all new cryptocurrency users since 2013. Welcome, Not So Fast. Thanks, Noah. It's a pleasure to be here speaking with you. Well, it's so much fun to get together. Last time we chatted, we sort of started to talk about your vision for the era of the network. And so I thought it might be fun today to kind of dive in a little bit more and and learn exactly uh, how, how you're thinking about this era and, and what that means for all of us building and uh, investing today. Yeah, sure. Uh, I'd, be, I'd be glad to. So where this kind of starts is by looking at, uh, I guess eras of how people conducted themselves through time. And so it seems a little bit um, putting putting our own era on a pedestal when taken into context with all these other historical eras because they lasted so much longer. But as with technology, it just accelerates the pace of everything that we see. So if I talk about like the era of hunting and gathering versus like the era of work and then the era of networking, which are both kind of in our lifetimes, um, the hunting and gathering era lasted a whole lot longer. Same thing with the industrial era and everything else. And do you think that's a remnant of, of just sort of how progress makes different eras or epics go faster and faster? Yeah, I really do. I mean, it's leveraged by technology and uh, that technology right now looks like what we think of as technology with uh, computers and machinery and networking. But technology before was um, ag- agriculturalism and the ability to stay in one place for a while and uh, the Gutenberg printing press, you know, the ability to disseminate information in ways other than word of mouth. So there have been technological levers on all of this progress throughout history and it affects the way we live our lives in a grander sense uh both individually and as a fa- as families and as societies and so the current shift is from the era of work to the era of network where our value as humans and as individuals and as tribes goes from what we can produce individually from our personal output to how we can connect everybody else that needs something or that can share something of value. And uh, we go from workers to nodes and our value is derived from our nodes and what we can share. So that's kind of the, the top level thing. That's a fascinating way to kick it off. And, and, and I guess like maybe even taking half a step back, sure. when you think about the notion of technology itself, uh, are we working with the definition of, of technology as doing more with less? Yeah, I would agree that that's a good way to sum it up. Um, we're able to uh, take a simple technological protocol and build out 
so much from that that was sort of not thought possible prior to that. So the analog would be, oh my gosh, with this agriculturalism, we can stop moving and we can build a permanent shelter and leverage that shelter among many more children in the family that we can protect because we've got all these technological tools. And similarly to the age of network, we've got um, the easiest protocol to, to sort of look at is TCP IP that connects so much stuff. And even 15 years ago, we wouldn't be able to imagine the proliferation of all this video um, where you now suddenly all calling is video calling. I mean, why, why not make it video calling? Because the, the streams and the protocols can handle all this video flying around. Um, there's, there's plenty more examples of that, but just uh, leveraging the network so far beyond static web pages that we saw in like the early and mid 90s to everything's dynamic, everything's got deep, rich content uh, and information that's immediately shareable and shared peer-to-peer or by centralized networks. Um, there's, there's so much pl- proliferation on that that we couldn't have ma- imagined before. It's kind of like the old uh, quip that it was easy to predict mass car ownership, but harder to predict Walmart, right? That, yeah, that's another good one that I actually haven't heard. And um, everybody thinks of the technology in terms of the incumbent being replaced. Like, well, why, why not just keep using horses and build, build technology on top of horses? I saw a fascinating patent the other day for a fake horse to attach to your horseless carriage so that it, it could make it just like, just like the good old days of people who, who did have horses. Oh, that's neat. That, uh, just have it fit in and, and one way, it's one way to bridge the gap, right? One must not scare the horses with progress and innovation. <laughs> so, so back to each of us as a node. Yeah. And I guess like one of the other things that this sort of gets at is as we increase the degree of connectivity, going back to technology is doing, um, doing the same things but with less or faster or better now, just like each of us is, is more empowered. Is that where you're going with this? Yeah. Uh, in, in, in a sense, yes, each of us is more empowered, but there's also more, um, more economic utility that each of us can get out of, uh, out, out of the networking node. Like there's, there are efficiencies built in that weren't there before. So here's an example. Um, and I, I'm just pulling these statistics uh, without sources because I don't remember where they came from. But it, they're, they're pretty easy to, uh, to figure out kind of on your own. Uh, if you own a vehicle, it's parked for 75 to 85% of the time and it's not being used. So um, there's a proliferation of car sharing services and vehicle sharing services that are out there. Of course, you've got Uber that has really taken over any kind of ride sharing or any kind of public transportation in a lot of ways because it gives all the conveniences of your own vehicle, but it's on demand and it's um, almost it's it's as streamlined as it can possibly get, but it's maximizing the utility of a vehicle that's owned uh, it's generating additional income for the vehicle's owner and the vehicle's owner also has a choice basically almost all the time whether to keep on driving or to start driving or to not be driving and do something else based on what they get the most utility out of and uh the age of network 
that if you have a vehicle, the value that you're providing to a network of people based on the, how far the protocols involved with that vehicle can reach is vastly increased. So when you're not driving, you can still be getting utility from your vehicle by, you know, letting somebody else drive for you and earn something from it. Or, uh, I mean, there's, there are so many protocols that allow you to derive, maximize the value that you get from owning a vehicle. And now, and now is this the same as to say that uh, it's really, as we all become nodes or different assets become nodes in networks, we're really just installing a market price or a market for these assets, services, and people? Uh, yeah, that's a really good way to put it. Um, the markets are at the outset based on centralized platforms such as Uber that sort of dictate a rent-seeking profit model. So Uber, the company, makes a haircut from driver's fees. But where we're going with networks of money like Bitcoin and uh, all the other alternatives out there are pretty soon these markets will be permissionless and autonomous. So when you have sort of a ride-sharing car, you'll be able to there, there will be sort of a, um, a bid and offer marketplace that's a little more efficient than simply Uber as one rent-seeking gatekeeper to that. Um, you'll, and, and that's sort of coming along with Uber's alternatives uh, like Lyft and all these other ones. Um, but you'll be able to um, set yourself kind of a minimum viable price that you're not willing to go drive for someone uh, below that price and you can adjust it at will and you'll you'll be able to set certain times of day where you're willing to bid a little more for a rider or a rider will be able to bid a little more for you and uh, there will be a lot more granularity and a lot more efficiency to the market without any kind of centralized protocol host earning rent from you and uh, making the distribution of wealth that you're extracting from this vehicle, uh, making it less equitable than it could be. So there's a trend towards uh, towards maximum equitability or equality, I suppose, with these with these assets as the networks, the market networks that you mentioned become more efficient and get built out. And so that's the next sort of stage of this era of network where your output that you could do at a job is worth less than your output or what you could do by your own choices through the different things you could provide of value to your network. So maybe it's a car, maybe it's computing power, which you can do at the same time, uh, mining cryptocurrency. Maybe it's a lending market where if you have a lawnmower in your garage, um, there's a protocol by which any neighbor that needs to mow his or her lawn can borrow that and automatically pay you and uh, automatically, you know, generate a repair ticket for it. For example, uh, there, there are protocols. And, and I guess where we are today is where we're seeing the deployment of the fungible marketplaces. So more uh, hashing power of, of your computer or video card is like kind of a starting place. Yeah, that's a it's a good place to to start simply because work from a computer is so fungible 
from a CPU or I guess a GPU, which is no longer a graphical processing unit, but a general processing unit. Um, it can hash so much cryptocurrencies, uh, any kind of given cryptocurrency. And there are plenty of protocols coming down the pipe, both from systems that have been in the works for the past couple of years and uh, new ones coming out all the time. They're starting with graphical rendering and rendering on demand can pay you know, 15 to 30 times more than mining the most profitable ki- cryptocurrency at a given moment. And so there are, there are going to be much more protocols, many more protocols competing for your compute power. And even if it's just, you know, a laptop or a nice gaming system, um, suddenly these things will be able to start paying for themselves and be, you know, if you, if you give permissions to the network, you'll find that uh, your machine will be co-opted at times you didn't even expect to uh, do some rendering for some graphical content or maybe a movie somewhere or maybe some uh, some uh, 3D presentations or modeling for uh, some architect somewhere that you that you didn't realize all this stuff is coming down the pipe really quickly and and is your mental model is your mental model for this then uh, kind of true p- proof of work is sort of the one side of the network is filled in a way with just latent price demand for hash power and sort of as we build out the demand side of this marketplace for com- for computation or for GPU usage then we start to level up the uh, kind of into higher value use cases of the underlying asset at least for compute power for hash power yeah I think that's what we're going to see really quickly and um, eventually it'll get to a point where uh, gamers don't want to game anymore because they're getting paid so much not to game. It's uh, an opportunity cost. Uh, leisure is an opportunity cost, uh, at least with spent, spent, as spent with a machine. So um, the demand side of that, because those uh, processes are the most flexible, um, I think that's where we'll see kind of the, the sharpest demand shocks, as you put it. Um, but for assets that are less fun- fungible, like the lawnmower I mentioned, or like a ladder that your neighbor might borrow, um, those economies will come around, I, I think, a little in a little more chill way, I think, you know, but still uh, the, the protocols that allow for proper economic sharing of those services will be built out um, from the compute distribution protocols, because that's really complex to do, but it's also so um, easily divisible and fungible in and of itself. I mean, as long as compute is done of sufficient quality, if the resources for aggregating all of that work are efficient enough, then it doesn't matter to a compute buyer whether they're getting 100,000 CPUs or 10,000 GPUs or 150 servers or some mix of of all of those. As long as that work is getting done at the quality level they need and at the speed that they've paid for, I guess, via their bandwidth. And, and that validation can kind of happen at the protocol level versus having to have a centralized actor like an Uber come in to quality assure and, and in some sense make the market. Right. And I think um, this is an instance where the centralized, decentralized uh, lens is it's not going to be a dichotomy, but it's rather going to be a spectrum where certain aspects 
perhaps the ownership aspects are going to be decentralized, perhaps probably with public-private key pairs. But in the name of efficiency, certain aspects will have to be centralized. So there will probably be um, a node aggregator or distributor that uses some kind of consensus model, but is somewhat centralized. You know, uh, I'm I'm thinking of the the master node system to draw kind of a a modern day parallel um, that will at least be responsible for distributing some of this work because there's a really high compute load to distribution of all these disparate uh, units of compute power, and so there there'll need to be certain. Uh, certain protocols that stay a little more centralized. So when we look at, uh, well, is this system decentralized or is this system centralized? We're looking at two poles of what we're going to realize is a large spectrum of smaller processes. Some of those will be centralized. Some of those will be decentralized. And depending on the process and what it requires, uh, it'll fall somewhere along that spectrum. And this sort of goes back, uh, there's the old troop that there's only two ways to, to, to profit. It's either to, to bundle or unbundle things. And so this is, would yeah. you say this is like the centralization versus decentralization is just sort of redistributing uh, in a bunch of different places in the ecosystem? Yeah, um, in a way, it will be doing, uh, it'll be bundling certain things and unbundling certain other things. Um, Depending on depending on what's required of, of the network, so um, let's take one of my favorite examples of the kind of next step up from Uber, which is investing in an autonomous, uh, self-selling, self-driving vehicle that uh, you know a self-driving taxi that you own, and it goes in, uh, it takes payments on its on its own with a blockchain, and uh, it goes and repairs itself and when it's made enough profit to ping your phone and let you know hey i'm ready to buy you a second taxi if you're interested um the network that that's a combination that's a bundling of a whole bunch of different processes that can be self-automated in a way um and self-propagating and creating value for an investor who basically does little to nothing so that that's an uh, that's an example of bundling and it sort of breaks down the, the the capital process or like right now, at least when I look at a lot of businesses, it's a mix of local knowledge insight plus either know-how or capital to kind of capture mm-hmm. the opportunity that exists in the market. And, and to just to build on to what you're saying, it's almost like um, as these market, as these opportunities become more readily accessible, then, then it just sort of abstracts the know-how, as in the, this car is available driving whichever street it's best optimized for, and then just the ownership and the capital part breaks off. I think I think you're you're right about that, and the way owners uh, that know-how or that specialized know-how will become distributed, where uh, will be separate from that process in that where you might have a taxi driver who knows the streets of his or her city. Um, and leverages that knowledge only into one vehicle, which he or she's currently driving at that given moment, uh, the, the job around that process might turn into system design where uh, helping inform an AI that processes multiple vehicles in the city 
where that person has gained the knowledge. So that um, it's the way it's similar to the way uh, robotics have changed factory work in that, you know, um, a specific manual process that you do over and over and get better at over time. Suddenly those people are, you know, ideally giving their knowledge to or becoming data points for informing the people that are programming the robots that replace them. So there's, uh, I like to use an an analogy for, uh, for painters too, like uh, people painting houses and going up on ladders and stuff. Uh, eventually they'll be piloting the drones that spray the paint on to the surfaces rather than getting up there by themselves with a, with a paintbrush. Advancement of the know-how. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, uh, they'll, people will be using the, the technology, just different technology eventually to, uh, to do kind of the same end. So, so even though this is your hypothetical, I heard a wonderful real world example of this, oh, yeah. which is um, one of uh, one of the nation's largest home insurers actually has a warehouse full of ladders, and they dispatch them using I forget whether UPS or, or FedEx. Whenever there's a natural disaster, ship all the ladders down there, send all the the claims adjusters down there, and then it's a manual process. And so this ensures actually teaching people how to fly drones to take ladders out of the loop. Incredible. That's, uh, that's pretty amazing. That's a system that I never could have surmised on my own if I wasn't deeply involved in an insurance industry and known the costs and benefits. But it, it's, and it seems so simple, like having a warehouse full of ladders to deploy where they're needed at any given time. But, uh, but it's brilliant in a, in that exact situation, which seems to happen often enough that you know we'd economically need it. And we kind of forget for so many of these large businesses that have existed for a long time just how much the the know how within those those older companies has accrued. In this case, odd physical assets distributed around a kind of very large plane that is our our meat space reality. Yeah, I, I I agree with that. Um, I, I don't know what I could possibly add because there's just so many examples that um, that we've already been over. So we'll just have to shift back to this prosaic small opportunity of programmable money. It's just a few trillion, uh, not much work to do there. Banks are working yeah. perfectly. <laughs> so when you when you look at, at sort of like the pure the pure money use case or or, or sort of this. We're installing markets in so many different places than we've ever had them before, because now we no longer have to have a New York Stock Exchange or, or similar to transfer value. H- how do you see this playing out over the next two, five, ten years? I think um, to answer that question, I have to go back to a concept that I've been working with, just kind of an overarching um, guideline called uh, I, I, I use hashtag yet also where. We're, we've got increasing complexity. So we'll have all the old ways of doing things in stock markets and different companies ringing the bell at an exchange, uh, for example. Yet also we'll have all these sub-markets uh, with varying degrees of integration with those markets um, subject to regulations, which obviously over time will will change to allow some of the um, the stubborn permissionless aspects of the other markets. I mean, the, the stubborn minority markets will have a way of, of changing things on, in other marketplaces just as uh, the stubborn minority can change cultural elements as well. Uh, so 
there there will be a lot more interpersonal volume and participation. And I guess what it will mean for most people is that they'll be everybody will be a broker for themselves and their assets and their services. And there'll be I very likely uh UIs that make this a lot easier, but people's understanding of economic value of what they own or what they control or who they are, even their own knowledge, will just become that much more rich and 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 vast. And I think people will become um the, the idea of a rational economic actor is all but out the window at this point. Um just because everybody acts economically towards their own set of values, which, you know, differ from the economic person who's just like every other person acting in an economy. So we'll see a lot more inefficiencies that can be exploited by an individual to enrich themselves without a real deleterious effect on anybody else out there. So I like to say that this network of markets is the final stage of capitalism before all these massive inefficiencies and savings of energies become, they, they become efficiencies and we end with utopia where there's so much flow of economic utility out there enabled by these protocols that we don't really want for anything anymore. Waste is minimized and economic gains are maximized so the last stage of the this is the final stage of capitalism that we're entering right now and then after that it's utopia and then after that i mean i can't think that far ahead <laughs> <laughs> and so and so i know like uh, many wise economists uh prior to our, uh, you and i riffing today have have sort of predicted the end of you know the regular work week or or of people having to strive and yet people work harder than ever why do you think that is i wish i could give an answer for that but a lot of it is uh short term and it, when i say short term i'm trying to look outside the, the eyes of a, a human looking at this and uh just see it as a phase in the change that will soon end so as jobs start to dry up and young people realize that their their assets and their participation as a node in the network economy or the the era of network where they can um they can participate as they see fit at their own convenience uh the the era the economy of work will sort of slow down and you won't have people grinding all the time necessarily um they'll they'll sort of realize that Hey, I'm not completely useful in what I'm doing for this part of the grind. And we, we see it uh, in the culture of side hustle, where side hustle is something that you do to um, increase your own uh, income. But eventually, there will only be side hustles left, and it'll be our process to maximize the free time that we have while fitting in those in, a, in the way that we, can, we most efficiently can. So it looks to us, to you and I right now, that we're grinding away with no tomorrow. And it looks to, uh, you know, accountants that I know that the, um, they're suddenly working seven days a week with uh, one Sunday per month off. And uh, the, the partnership is, uh, you know, always two years down the line um, in, in those cases. And I think those 
entrenched hierarchical industries will be the slowest to change. And uh, the change will, in this case, happen from the bottom up where uh, you see it in like what we think of as low skilled wage, uh, minimum wage type jobs where turnover is probably 10 times what it was uh, 20 years ago for these type of jobs, simply because they're not they're, they're placed at minimum value by the systems in which they operate and the, the uh, economic actors who own those uh, systems and pay those wages. But they're also equally devalued to the maximum point by the people filling those roles for shorter and shorter times because they know that they're replaceable and they know that is just a baseline income generating activity that they're looking to replace at the same time. So the slog is ending to, to bring it all together. <laughs> And, and also like the, you know, uh, Robert Coase, who is a f- famous poli sci turned corporate studier, it's sort of the theory of the firm is breaking down in your view. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I would imagine that it is. Um, I mean, there are always going to be firms because there's uh, the entrenched marketplace for shares of big firms and, and economic action by firms with a lot of capital to, to really push new boundaries that, that can't be pushed or can't be collaborated on by, um, uh, you know, too many, too many cooks spoiling the soup for a really large venture. Uh, but I wouldn't be surprised if we have a, we, we get a hit maker culture where the, the short head of the, um, the firms become the, the, there'll be just a few juggernauts, and then a really long, long tail. So we'll have the, the, the big firms will be bigger than ever. And I think we're kind of seeing that now with um, how big you know, firms like Apple are getting. Uh, but we're going to see yet also a whole bunch of new types of firms. Short term, uh, the, the SPV will become uh, probably the most popular type of firm where a bunch of individuals and or companies get together to achieve one specific project or goal. And then they go their separate ways because there are protocols to uh, make or break that goal, manage the economics during it, and uh, then splinter off the capital to to other things. That's fascinating. And so on the big company front, the FANGs, the Facebook, Apple, Google, Snapchat, Netflix, weigh in. Where, where do you think they go next five, 10 years? It's so hard to say, but I think um, at least with with Facebook and Snapchat, those types of things, it, it's it's pretty clear that at least social media and ways that people congregate, um, those can shift a lot quick, a lot quicker. Because essentially, they're they're renting servers and they're just creating algorithms, and they're trying to strike an, eco- an economic balance between maximum extraction of value and what people are sort of willing to take or where the culture ends up moving. So um, I guess the more capital you have and deploy, the less likely it is that um, you're going to be erased by somebody changing the algorithms around which you work um, in a way that either pisses people off less or uh, identifies uh, you know, it, it's less culturally dependent, I think, because culture grows and changes and gets more complex, uh, I think, faster than anything else we have. So capital is the one rock that uh, makes change happen more slowly. 
Got it. And so in your view, it's still the anchor that that companies can use. And, and, and we should be looking at, you know, the, the General Motors or maybe even the Teslas of the world who have true capital assets are, is a path for their own durability. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And my favorite example for capital as a, uh, a core competency is a company called Mamoet. Uh, I know they're in they're they're Scandinavian, I believe, but they specialize in just massive, massive machinery. So, like uh, the ship that moves the ship that moves the oil tankers, that's a Mamoet product. They're the only company that has ever been able to build something like that in the world. They're the they're the company that um, has a barge that will move a bridge from one continent to another. That's and, a big uh, boat. Yeah, they, they they specialize in massive machinery, and um, they're it's really fascinating, kind of what they do. They're not they're not well known, and they're not their their praises aren't highly sung because what they do is, um, you know, at the extreme end of specific functionality. Um, but because they do capital in a very big, very focused way, um, I. I can't see any other company, first of all, being interested in competing with them and their, their capital knowledge and investment is so far ahead of anything else that, you know, why, why would you? So, okay. They're the extreme example. And so for, for people who are awakening as nodes in this network era, how, how would you instruct them or how do you think about people building their own edge within this new international marketplace? Oh, I try to encourage it um, anytime I can with both uh, encouraging people to learn um, how to think about work as being more than work, um, but being something that you choose to do. And I think the younger generation gets it definitely with uh, the whole side hustle culture that I mentioned. Um, But realizing that anything they buy or own is not just a consumable thing, but also potentially an economic thing that can generate for them as well as be consumed by them. So the more that we can do to snap people out of thinking of purchasing and consuming versus seeing something as an investment or what can this laptop do for me? What can this uh, GPU do for me? Uh, in, as, in as far as generating income, I think people are naturally edge seeking, whether it's buying lottery tickets, whether it's looking for discounts, coupon clipping. Um, if the avenues can be understood towards that kind of little bit of leveraging uh, inefficiencies in the systems that they perceive, uh, if we can build protocols that are easy enough for people to use it's an open door that everybody will walk right through, I think. It's awesome. And so what do you think in, in your travels so far in the crypto space, what are things that you're excited about or things that you believe uh, technologists should be building but aren't? Uh, I think that um, there's, there's so much out there that I can barely keep track of it. And it almost feels like everything that should be being built is being built and a whole bunch of other stuff besides. So the nice part of that sort of crypto economy is that for a long time, if people had a little bit of a change they wanted to make to 
Bitcoin parameters or a specific project that they could uh, that they wanted to undertake, um, they could just do it without permission. Then we had sort of the the influx of venture capital last year and everything that came along with that, uh, or the just a, ven- a new venture capital protocol that was completely permissionless too. So you know there was a lot of fluff built around that, but I do think that there were uh, genuine initiatives born within all that chaos as well. And um, there's there's going to be um, an opportunity, I think, with governed financial networks with regular budgets built into their protocols. And again, I'm talking about uh, master nodes here, which are not the only way to do it, but they're one fairly simple and working way to do it. Uh, decentralized autom- autonomous organizations where community members have a vote on how these budgets are spent. Um, they're a little rough around the edges now, to say the least, but this is where a lot of initiatives will get their funding from. And that's that encompasses anything under the sun that you could care to do as a capital project. That's awesome. And it's funny with, with DAO-like organizations, it's a little bit of what is old is new again. When you harken back to the traditional mutual companies that provided uh, life, in, life insurance or other products to um, people who working in a community that had a known mortality, one share is one piece of ownership within that, that mutual firm. Yeah, that's uh, that, that's a fantastic analogy to how uh, how it's probably going to look on the outside. I mean, um, if uh, in a in a sense, from a certain viewpoint, nothing would have changed at all, uh, just except for the way that uh, you come into this uh, and in, into ownership or control of of part of the assets. And uh, again, it's just it's that exact mutual company, yet it's networked and it's interoperable with a whole bunch of other money networks out there. So it's values much easier to discern. Okay. And, and yeah, and to, to just set our expectations, you, you know, we were chatting earlier about every call should be a video call, but um, in, in the, the digital money and the era of the network equivalent, what year are we? Is this 1994, people are first getting online? Is this 1999, froth of the froth of the bubble? Where are we? I love, I, I, I constantly think about where we could put ourselves on there. And I wish it were chronologically placeable. But I think the additional complexity that we've got and kind of the, the increased skin in the game that we have with networked money where everybody understands money and there's a lot higher incentive to jump in um we are both 1994 and 1999 at the same time and we're also a little bit 1970s like darpa level uh where it's just a few communicating nodes uh for certain aspects of this and uh, we're probably, you know, early 2000s as well, building out secondary layers and protocols on this. So it's all those dates kind of happening at the same time in concurrency. Uh, in in this in this era, uh, we're seeing multiple phases of development uh, all happening together, and their progress is sl- slowly bleeding across to each other. Um, it's, it's a lot to wrap one's head around because it doesn't, the history of, uh, of the network 
money era is not going to look anything as sequential as the history of the internet era. I like that. That's very well said. And you said something else that I want to touch on sure. uh, about now everyone has skin in the game. There's this delightful um, Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's business partner's quote, you know, where he says, uh, I've underestimated the power of incentives every year, and I'm now 89 years old, huh. or something to that effect. So so how, how do you sort of see this skin in the game playing out, and, and uh, what does this unlock? Oh, so many things in so many ways. I guess the easiest way to give an analogy would be to talk about uh, the philosophy behind the economic philosophy behind Bitcoin maximalism and people thinking like, okay, well, Bitcoin is the soundest money that's ever been created. And therefore we should only be building on Bitcoin yet. We're not seeing that. And there are so many incentives for someone to, fork Bitcoin because it's open source and try it on their own. Maybe they have only tweaked the parameters a little bit. Maybe they've tried to build Bitcoin in a different language. Maybe they've tried to do uh, something even further away from Bitcoin's core concept than that. The Bitcoin maximalism viewpoint states that this stuff is for the purposes of self-enrichment over building on what we all know should be the foundation of our future money. And they make the leap that therefore, because there is self-interest, it's thus a scam. And they denounce from that, they, they say, okay, everything is a scam. That's not Bitcoin. And we're just not seeing that. I mean, profit is not necessarily a dirty word first and foremost. And there is a certain degree of complexity to human incentives in the first place. I mean, there just isn't incentive for certain people to build on Bitcoin altruistically, expecting nothing in return. Some people are motivated by the idea of creating their own money and making that money worth a whole lot and thereby enriching themselves, but also doing a bunch of good. So there's a conflation and an oversimplification in that whole mindset, that that base core economic mindset of sound money is one thing only. And what it really is, is all of these variations in aggregate become, and, and all of these incentives that vary, if you want to get right down to it, down to the individual um, as a centralized actor within a completely networked and decentralized space, um, you're going to get sound money from Bitcoin, yet also various degrees of unsound yet still valid money or economic activity or economic network within a massive system. Right. Because I can use, I can use a not so fast coin right. if you were to ever have one. And it's still better than the existing banking infrastructure that, that was previously my only choice. Right. As long as it's permissionless or less permissioned than banking software to a degree, and as long as it is networked and interoperable to the maximum degree uh, outside of the existing system. Uh, there's a, there's a, a quote that I like from the founder of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, where uh, I think it's from the early 90s, where he says, networks interpret censorship as damage and they route around it. They, just, they don't even see it as an issue. They just see it as a roadblock. 
And what you'll end up getting is as long as these permissionless networks are free to interconnect, I mean, that's what they're going to do. That's where the path of at least resistance lies. And, and resistance is just there are so many other routes from and through different nodes that roadblocks don't exist, really. They're just... And, and so you're not a Bitcoin maximalist. Uh, I... I I like to say that I am a Bitcoin maximalist, yet also I think I'm beyond a generalist to uh, a Bitcoin pan monetarist, maybe. Pan, uh, to, Ooh, double click on that. Yeah, pan, uh, pan monetarist as a parallel to pantheism, where uh, there's just a, a panoply of different options that are out there all at war with each other, all at peace with each other, all working with each other. We're, we're in an era of Greek gods of networked money, and there's more being born all the time. I love that. <laughs> okay. Well, awesome. Well, we've still got our last few minutes together. I, I just thought we could close out with a couple, a couple quick questions. Sure. So, so one, what's something that you think locally, just like in either your, your work experiences or, or your life experiences or, or physically where you've been in the world has sort of influenced your, your thinking that you, you can place? You know, um, it's, it's kind of hard to say. Um, I'm a business owner, so I see um, the generational mindsets among people uh, that are employed by the business, uh, people that are in their fifties and people that are in their twenties and how differently they approach, um, money and work and, uh, what constitutes a long time doing a job for something and what constitutes progress for something. So I, it fascinates me because everybody's got their own concept. Um, and it doesn't really, the, the feedback loop is not really there for them in a, in the world of work, but in the world of network, that feed work, that feedback is almost immediate. So the market that you, in which you're participating tells you exactly what you're worth and there's in no, no uncertain of, terms. Yeah. In no uncertain terms. So I think, um, the younger someone is and the less privileged their background, I think the more likely they are to realize that immediately and the harder they will seek edges in, in any given way. So that's, that's probably um, what's influenced my kind of enthusiasm for how great people are at pushing the air of network forward for their own benefit, if only they can understand the protocols that they're using. And right now, the that's people, very profound. Yeah, the people the people that understand those protocols best um, are kind of tech oriented because everything looks so new, but it won't take long for the great designers of the world who are really good at building things that allow people to think without thinking when they use something to kind of Joni Ive up a, a protocol that lets these edge seekers say, Oh, I get this. I'm going to use this. I can get so much more from doing it this way than the slog that we talked about. And you have been so so generous and and most of all welcoming to new people in this space. And, and really, a hat tip a hat tip to you on that. Oh, and thanks. and which 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 asked me to ask, um, what's something someone's done for you, an act of kindness or welcoming or or 
learning uh, that you've received in the past that that's had an impact on you? It's mostly the sharing of, of knowledge of someone's own deep interest. And um, the, a really weird example, you might even laugh. The owner of a company um, that I worked for when I was a student um, took me uh, to make burgers for the whole staff one day, his way. And we went shopping for the beef and the pork. And I, I just always bought burgers out of a box. But he taught me the secret of how to make the best burger, what he considered the best burger ever. And they were damn good. And uh, to this day, I've tried <laughs> to build on his recipe uh, with, you know, using my own and using his techniques. And I can't get it notice- noticeably better than him. And I was so grateful that he shared that with me. And I try to give him credit every, every time somebody says, oh, my God, your burgers are so good. Like, let's, let's go over to your place for a barbecue. I have to give him credit because he shared that recipe with me. And it's so simple um, how, to, how to make a really good burger. And so knowledge is the secret ingredient? Yeah. Well, knowledge imbued with a little bit of passion, I think, and enthusiasm for what you're doing. Uh, uh, you know, it, it's, it's sort of similar to the way that anybody's interesting when they're talking about something about which they're passionate, right? And so he was passionate about burgers. And I was interested enough and engaged enough that I soaked up that recipe so quickly. So, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a good analogy. Well, that is a fabulous, fabulous way to end what has been a fascinating conversation. So, so for, for folks listening today, um, how can they follow more of your thinking and, and, and follow along the era of the network? Uh, well, I try to stay high level on my Twitter at not so fast with uh, talking about all these ideas, fleshing them out with anybody who will uh, present the other side of the, the scoop for me. And then um, as far as turning that into investable uh, engagements with the marketplace as it arises, I am also at not so fast on a platform called InvestFeed, where I post uh, the mining that I do and the trades that I make in the cryptocurrency space. And those are the two places where uh, I'm most active. Fantastic. Well, it has been truly a pleasure to uh, spend some time together today. And, and I really appreciate you taking the time. I really appreciate your time too, Noah. Thank you very much. It's been fantastic talk. Awesome. Take care. Cheers. You as well.